Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I am your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here with Dr. James Castelli today. Uh, he is the chair of the English department at the University of Houston, has written several books on rhetoric and Plato, uh, and his latest book is Loving the World Appropriately, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, Dr. Castelli, absolute pleasure to have you on today. Well, thank you. It's going to be fun to talk with you. So, uh, you know, I, I see there's a, there's a a trail of of your books here, you know, um, you know, you start with the rhetoric of Plato's Republic, and then you have rethinking the rhetorical tradition from Plato to postmodernism, and then you have this book, uh, loving the world appropriately. Uh, how does your work kind of cohere, and why this book in particular? Why loving the world appropriately? Uh, that's that's a fun question. I was thinking about that. It it all starts with Baker's uh, and. I was working on Plato's dialogue, the Gorgias, and a dialogue I'd read maybe 15, 20 times and taught for 12, 14 years. And all of a sudden I was saying, well, why is he talking about bakers? What's, what's going on about bakers? What, what's that doing in this dialogue about rhetoric? And the more I thought about it, I thought, oh, wait a minute. It's one of these sort of, you know, it's like getting knocked off your horse. And uh, I thought, okay, I, I know what's going on in bakers. and, and um, Traditionally, Plato has been conceived of as one of the chief opponents to rhetoric, uh, and people have thought him to be uh, just someone who didn't understand what was going on in practical discourse and whatnot. And there was a book called uh, In Defense of Rhetoric by Brian Vickers, and Vickers was so mad at Plato, he was just outraged. Uh, and I, as I was reading this book, I thought, well, if Plato is as bad as you think he is. You don't have to debate with him because he's just irresponsible. Uh, and if it's if his complaint against rhetoric is that he just you know that it can be abused, that's a philosophically unimportant position. But if following Baker's, you can imagine somebody who's who's in, who's inherited a natural practice making bread, and uh, so has no reason to question its goodness because provides uh, nutrition to people. And because he's a responsible baker, he decides, you know, my bread could be made cheaper and could last longer if I put in a preservative. Uh, but because he's not a doctor, he doesn't understand the preservative that he's putting in is potentially carcinogenic. And so what you have is someone pursuing a good and inadvertently creating an injury. I thought, okay, if that's what Plato's thinking about rhetoric, then what Plato really is really arguing is that we're born into languages and we take over the languages and we have no reason to assume that we who are using the languages are doing anything wrong. And what we really need to do is to be refuted. We need to, we need to begin to examine the concepts that we are using. And so Socrates spends his entire life refuting people. And uh, what you realize is he doesn't refute propositions. He refutes people. 
And at one point, he's, he is uh, likened to being a torpedo fish that stings you and your tongue swells, so you lose your language. And so the whole point of refutation is to make you examine your language, to make you examine the thing that you, you feel comfortable in and you have no reason to examine. And that's why Socrates irritates everybody, uh, because by and large, he's suggesting, look at the thing that you are doing is causing problems and you don't know it. And everybody assumes that that's an attack against their deliberate intentions. And you begin to realize you have this character who, who spends his life irritating everybody in these dialogues, going around and uh, just challenging people. And he's challenging people in part because he's seeking to be refuted. And um, because there's, he, 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 he cannot make a claim that he has superior knowledge. Uh, and so what you realize early on in these dialogues is these are all rhetorical exchanges. Uh, and the more you start looking at Plato's work, the more you look at less as sort of a contemporary practice of philosophy, and you look at more as, as a literary production. And the more I start to look at this in terms of the lens of literary criticism, the more I began to say, you know, these dialogues are really interesting. and there's this tendency to translate them into positions where what you're in fact watching is, is by and large a rhetorical exchange enacted. And that got me going. Uh, and then two things really happened, I think. Um, one is I, uh, as I read the Phaedrus, and I keep thinking I'm going to be done with it. You know, it's one of these books that, okay, I understand that book. I'm going to put it aside. Every time I do that, I come back to it and I think, you know, I got it wrong. Uh, it's more complicated and more interesting than I thought. And early on in that dialogue, Socrates is challenging uh, the people who are rationalizing myths. You know, they're giving sort of rationalistic explanations of, well, if this goes on, here's what's really happening. Socrates says, well, I don't have time to do that. Uh, I have more important work. And the first thing he says is, well, you don't do anything. So what do you mean you don't have time to do that? Uh, but then he says, I don't know who I am. And I thought, that's really interesting. Why don't you know who you are? And then I began to realize it's because subjectivity cannot be known. Uh, that you are, in fact, a mystery to yourself. Uh, Jonathan Lear, at one point, you know, quoting Freud, or working off Freud, says, a person is by their very nature out of touch with their subjectivity. So another way to put that is, we are not an object of knowledge. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are something that's evolving, something that's alive, that we are fundamentally different from an object. You know, you can know a chair. A chair has a fixed um, shape, form, and identity. You can't know yourself. I mean, that's the interesting thing. You, 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 can, you can treat that as an activity, but to borrow from Ann Carson, it's a ruse. You're never going to figure out who you are. Uh, and if you did, you wouldn't be very interesting. Um, and so the more I started reading these Platonic dialogues and looking at them less as works of philosophy and more as works of literature, the more I began to say, you know what? Uh, until the latter part of his career, Plato was really a poet. And what he was really trying to do was displace Homer. Uh, and that's where the second book came from. Uh, the, the rhetoric of Plato's Republic is... I was supposed to be writing this book, 
But then I said, I'll just look at the Republic briefly. And uh, the more I looked at the Republic, it was really interesting because um, it starts off with book one. And in book one, there's by and large a debate between Socrates and Thrasymachus. And, you know, Socrates wins, as, as he always does, okay? Um, and he's about to leave. And this is the start of book two. And they, and they, they pull him aside. Uh, and they say, were you just trying to win a contest, or are you really trying to persuade us? And they said, well, I was really trying to persuade you. And they said, well, you totally failed. Uh, we don't care that you won the argument. No one believes anything you're saying. Uh, and so in order to do a persuasion, <coughs> it takes nine books. And so I started to think, well, wow, that's a really interesting thing. What we're seeing is a mimetic presentation of an extended act of persuasion. And the extended act of persuasion is to show you that, that you value justice, even though you, you, the characters in the dialogue, say nobody values justice. Listen, the only reason people are just is they're terrified of being caught. Uh, and so it's totally self-interested, and it takes nine books to shift that over. I thought, well, that's really interesting. So it explains several things. First of all, that persuasion rarely occurs as a one-off. Uh, and if you start thinking in your life, Rarely have you been just persuaded by one event. It's a far more complex process where you have to sort of entertain things, you have to go back, you have to examine them. And all of a sudden I think, yeah, people have explained persuasion totally wrong. And the reason they've explained persuasion totally wrong is they always have looked at it from the angle of the person doing it to the person being done. So persuasion has always been conceived to be an activity undertaken to get somebody else to do something. Uh, even when it's defended, it's defended because, for example, in Aristotle, Aristotle by and large says, rhetors can help you make better inferences. That's what they can do. Uh, you know. And I thought, well, flip it over. Ask, why does somebody need to be persuaded? Uh, what goes on when you're persuaded? Um, and then I bumped into Ann Carson. And Ann Carson's wonderful book, Eros the Bittersweet, which is a book everybody should read. Uh, it should be on everybody's list. And what Ann Carson does in that is she says, if you look at the archaic lyric poets of Greece, they didn't like Eros. Uh, they didn't like desire. They thought desire was the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, they talk about it being melted, of being attacked. Uh, and what desire did is it suggested that you are not an autonomous self, uh, that this thing you had no control over was going to hit you and mess up with you, uh, that you know, no one plans to be in love. It's kind of like catching the flu. You don't know how it happens, but all of a sudden it has taken you over. And, uh, and you would like to have a shot. You'd like to be immunized because you'd like to have control over your life. You know, as I explained to my students, during the semester, the last thing that you want to happen, especially if you have a paper due in my class, is to fall in love, because that will just utterly mess up your, your, your time. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, that's what happens. Uh, the, the other thing is you begin to realize is it's not accidental who you fall in love with. You may periodically be wrong about it, but it somehow shows you something about yourself that you don't have access to in any other way. And then 
in the Greek world, eros and persuasion are sort of companions. And I thought that's a really interesting thing. Um, and they're companions because both of them can invade you and change you. Uh, and, you know, you, you can, in fact, create a self that's resistant to both, you know. Uh, but you can only do so by choosing not to engage in the world, uh, you know. Uh, and so all of a sudden, when all this stuff started being put together, I thought, okay, you know, we have to rethink what persuasion is. And we have to sort of say, why do we need it? How does it work? And the more you start doing that, you realize it's the fundamental activity that defines us as these peculiar kinds of creatures who are capable of growing. And, um, and we're growing because we're persuaded. And uh, that became a really interesting concept for me. And that's why I bumped into Jonathan Lear and his rereading of Freud and his discussion of subjectivity. And all of a sudden, Eros pops up again. You know, and so I began to realize, well, wait a minute. What all of these people are, are doing is they're, they're discovering how deeply we are an affective creature, you know, that we don't stand to the world in a neutral way. Uh, and if that's somehow a defining feature of us, how do we think about that? Uh, and um, so that's where this whole project came. And so in a sense, it's, it's, it's a lifelong effort to try to understand what Socrates was about and why it's both exciting and terrifying. And then to begin to sort of say, you know, there's this activity in my whole life that I have been engaged in called persuasion that I really haven't understood well. And I haven't understood well because it's been framed in a certain way. And I was thinking about this uh, before just before we started to talk about it, and this is something if I had a chance I would redo in the book. Um, I often talk about the persuasion occurring because there's a point of dissatisfaction and that you're then open to a reconsideration. And I thought, that's partly right. But then I thought, you know what? Think about the number of times in your life that you've picked up a book. And it's not that you're unsatisfied with anything, but all of a sudden the book took you over and persuaded you. Uh, and so it's, it's often a response to something which isn't even perceived initially as a lack or a dissatisfaction. But you begin to realize, because I've had this experience, I need to figure out who I am freshly. I need to reorganize myself. I need to say I understand this concept better. And, and to do that, you have to, to make an initial act, which is in some way, shape, or form, I was inadequate. Uh, I, I, had, I had not investigated things as fully as I should have. Uh, I, I, I had an understandable inability to be as open as I should be, and, and that's totally understandable. Uh, and what this book just did is it grabbed me, you know, by my shoulders, shook me and said, look it, you have to think better. Uh, and you have a choice at that point. You can say, yeah, I do. Or you can say, no, I, I'm perfectly content with who I am and I'm not going to change. And that also began to make me think, persuasion is a potentially interesting way to think about what constitutes a good political system. Uh, in a good 
political system, one of the things that it has to do is create conditions and citizens that are genuinely open to persuasion. And that can become a, a way that we value something and it can become a kind of a justification for democracy. That part of the value of democracy is it creates conditions for persuasion. And so all of this stuff began to just come together. And you can kind of see how the books go. So the first book starts with refutation. The second book sort of pushes its way in as I'm trying to work on the third book. Uh, after I get the second book done, uh, then I try to figure out what I learned in the second book, and that's the third book. Uh, so that's kind of a long answer to a short question. Uh, great answer, though, and I think it leaves us with um, a lot of uh, fruitful paths to take. Uh, I think the first one, and I'm sure you've thought of this, you talked about you can't know yourself, that the subjectivity cannot be known. Um, and uh, so how do you uh, interpret Socrates' probably most famous saying, know thyself? I think it's a ruse. Uh, and the way, the way I understand that is it's very much, uh, it, it's helpful to go back to Ann Carson's Eros. And Ann Carson says, desire works by a ruse. Because you always think what you're doing is pursuing the object of desire. But if you get it, desire vanishes. Uh, you know, she always talks about the apple that's just out of reach. And you realize for desire to go forward, the apple has to stay out of reach. It's got to be there because you, you need to have a potential objective. But you also know if you get it, you're going to destroy the thing that gives vitality and energy to your life. And I think the quest for self-knowledge is the same kind of a ruse. It's not that you'll ever know who you are, but it, I would say it, it creates a productive dissatisfaction. Uh, it says you cannot rest content with who you think you are. Uh, and the, the, the way I kind of put this together is there's a, when Socrates in the Phaedrus is, is doing the palinode and beginning to talk about how do you fall in love with somebody? And um, he said, one of the things you realize is that what you perceive is the two of you dance in the chorus of the same God. And which I always like to explain to my students that what that means is when you fall in love, the person you fall in love with, it, it, it's a rhetorical operation. Uh, they're a figure divinity. Uh, this is the God that you worship. Uh, uh, and, and you worship it because that God is inside you. So in a sense, what love begins to do is it opens up the possibility of exploring the mystery of who you are. But you explore who you are, not through a, an operation like Descartes, by sitting in a room and thinking, but by engaging erotically uh, with other things. And what you love discloses or allows you to disclose the mystery which is inside you that you can never fully grasp, but that you can sort of allowed to emerge in more complex ways, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, and that's kind of what you're doing. You're, you're learning how to dance your divinity. Uh, and, and that's kind of what I think happens. And um, so I think the know yourself is, should be read negatively, which is the reason you have to do this is because you don't know who you are. And you think you do. Uh, and it's my job as Socrates to irritate you uh, and to, to, to say, you, you are a more interesting person than you think you are. 
but for a variety of reasons, you're not willing to take that risk. Uh, because if you take the risk, you're inevitably finding out you're not who you think you are and that there's work to do. Uh, that you should, you know, it, it's like when I reread my book, the first thing I thought is, I kind of recognize that book, but there are problems with it. Uh, and there, and I didn't know there were problems with it till I came back and looked at it again. And, um, and so people ask me, well, why do you publish? Uh, which is a good question. I said, well, I published to find out what I got wrong. Uh, and it's not so much I think I'm going to give everybody an answer. If they get stuff, that's fine. But what I'm really interested in is, what didn't I see that I thought I saw? You know, uh, where did I take over a concept uncritically because I thought I understood what it was and I didn't really understand what it was? And, um, and if I engaged with that, that's the moments I become alive. Uh, you know, that, that's the point where, uh, and I try to talk to my students about this a lot. And, and when you write, the gifts that you get always start with resistance. It's, it's always when the draft says, I'm not going to let you write me this way. Uh, but you're, you're moving towards an answer that preexisted this thing. And I'm, as a draft, I'm, I'm refusing it. You have to deal with the resistance. You have to say, why is this draft breaking down here? And inevitably, it's because you have an intuition that's smarter than you're going to allow the draft to get to because it's seriously risky. And if you're willing to, to sort of stay with the resistance, all of a sudden, an idea emerges which is smarter than you could have consciously come to by working through something. So you realize, well, wait a minute. There, there was something moving me forward that I couldn't get at because I had a whole series of sort of defense mechanisms to keep the draft safe. And the draft decided to go wild on me. And it's only because it decided to go wild on me uh, that I'm able to get at the thing that was really driving why I wanted to write this draft anyway. And so I kind of feel that this, this know thyself uh, really is, 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 is sort of a caution sign which says you don't know who you are. Uh, and neither do I. See, that's the interesting thing is I can't criticize you because I'm in a superior place of knowledge. Because if I do that, what I'm simply doing is forcing a vision of yourself on you. And that's an inherently aggressive act, which is, hey, I know you better than you know yourself. Here's who you are. See, the only thing I can say is, and this is what Socrates does, is give me language. If you give me language, I will show you how this statement and this statement don't come together. And I'm not trying to create an intellectual problem for you. What I'm trying to say is there is a deep contradiction that has not been allowed to surface because no one has really challenged you in this way. And that this is not, and this is not an individual moral criticism of you. This is, in fact, a discovery of who we are, uh, that we are inevitably trying to work through blockages and contradictions and whatnot. Not because we're inadequate in some sense, but because that's how they emerge and that's how you work through them. Uh, that you're always trying to play a game of catch up. Uh, and if you think about your adult life, think about how much of your adult life has been trying to undo things that you learned before you had a chance to criticize them. And uh, 
And if you think about it, that's a continual act of persuasion. Uh, and because it only works if you finally say, yeah, that's right. Um, and if, if you sort of intellectually agree with it, it's, it's not there. It hasn't reconstituted you. Uh, there, there has to be this way in which by incorporating this, I change who I am. You know, I become a little bit more, it's not like a total change, but I become more complex. I become capable of appreciating the world better. And what you know is there's a tendency then for that to freeze into a fixed identity. And this is part of why I want to say, you know, one of the things that persuasion does is it allows rhetoric to defend itself. Uh, rhetoric is always, a, you know, the, the classic rhetoric versus philosophy is philosophy gives you knowledge, rhetoric gives you persuasion. And one of the things you want to say about rhetoric is, thank God it doesn't give you knowledge. Uh, that, that, that knowledge freezes you and fixes you. That persuasion says, you've gotten this far, but that's not the end. And so what you want to say, when persuasion fails, people assume it's knowledge. Uh, and you'll say, no, you've simply been persuaded. Uh, and so on one hand, you can embrace this and be excited by it. Or on the other hand, you can be terrified by it because it seems like there's no end point that you can rest at. Uh, that what you're always discovering is somehow you're not good enough. And th that requires a certain kind of sense of self or engagement or excitement about the world. Uh, and most of us can't do it all the time. Uh, that's why Socrates can seem peculiarly inhuman. You know, you can't really live a life quite the way he did, the fictional character did. Um, that, that, that you'll find that you're frozen at certain points. And, um, and in part because it takes a lot of work. Because it, it's a lot of work to continually transform. It is. Yeah. And, 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 and this is where Lear becomes helpful to me. And if you say, well, no, I'm, I'm committed to that. I'm going to do it. For Lear, that's a hysterical response. Uh, and, and, and you can understand it because like, hey, I'm going to get out of this by an act of will. The rest of the world can somehow be these, these, you know, these slugs that don't look at themselves, but me, I'm going to do it. And you'll say, that's an absolute way of avoiding it. That's an absolute way of avoiding it. And so you'll say, well, what do you then do? And the answer is, I think you do a couple of things. Um, you talk to people, you become sort of, you sort of lead erotically and figure out what are the things you love. And by interacting with them, their books, there's films, there's people, there's whatever. Uh, what it does is allows you to become, I want to say, allows you to have a richer and fuller life. And the reward for that is it, be, is it means that you're capable of, I want to say, more complex and interesting instances of, of erotic attachment. And you feel alive. Uh, and if the alternative is feeling not alive, uh, then you got to say feeling alive is a good thing. And so um, persuasion all of a sudden becomes this larger and larger concern. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, this has just been talked about wrong for 2,500 years, uh, which, you know, is a kind of an amazing <laughs> thing to say. And, uh, but I think it has been. Uh, and for example, when I, when I first started working on the Republic, I realized, wait a I minute. I love the audacity. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I looked at the Republic, I thought, 
People have been reading this as a work of philosophy for 2,500 years. They're wrong. Uh, what, the, what the Republic is, is a, it's a democratic epic poem. Uh, it's Plato's attempt to, to, to move Homer to, a, to the side, to say, listen, an aristocratic warrior ethos is not good for a democracy. Uh, the interesting sort of drama in democracy is trying to understand what justice is realizing that people tend to think that justice is something that you do because you can't get away with things. And, and if people have that attitude, it's destructive of a democracy. And so what you need is a work of art. What you need is a poem so that you are persuaded to be just so that you are just rather than that you're just because you're a chicken. Uh, and, you know, you don't want a chicken democracy, basically. Uh, and so I, I think that uh, the Republic really is an attempt to, rid, to, to change the nature of a citizenry. And it's to change the nature of a citizenry through an act of persuasion. And what that's supposed to then do is, is to create a citizenry who are just because they've been persuaded that they value justice. Uh, and so that's kind of what I think was going on in that that. that uh, text um, and so well, this yeah. all begins to make mind? me think pardon? Oh, I'm sorry go ahead no, I was going to say just tends to make me oh, think I was that, just going to uh, uh, go ahead <laughs> no I was going to say it just tends to make me think that that there are a lot of things to be rethought of after 2500 years yeah absolutely sorry for uh, I, I just wanted to uh, make sure that I'm tracking and maybe just use different language um, so when you talk about know thyself uh -huh. um what another way of be talking about is that that ruse, and if if that is a, a mental block for someone, maybe even talk about know thyself as kind of like the engine for transformation. Would that be a way of thinking about it? Yeah, I mean that's how the ruse works. Uh, it, it gets the machine going. Uh, or, uh, here's what it is: it, it it gives you a purpose, even if the purpose needs to be held uh, in the subjunctive mode or something. Uh, but yeah, it, it really says, is, look at, um, there is, this is important and valuable thing to do. And, and, and it, it's another way, maybe to pay your point, and that what you're doing is a deliberative activity. It's, it's not sort of random, that it, it's purposeful activity, even if the final purpose is not reachable. And, um, and, and that's part of why it requires a certain kind of courage that there is a way in which you you've undertaken a quest uh and the quest at a certain point should have enough sort of i want to say engagement or pleasure in it that the quest itself becomes reinforcing uh and for that to happen you also need a world to cooperate with you a bit um, and I think this is the other thing that that's interesting about erotic attachment is I, I, I spend a lot of time with taking this over, over this notion of responsiveness when I'm working on this book on, 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 uh, rhetoric and responsiveness is if I'm following Lear's reading of, of Freud, it's something that's fundamental to to erotic engagement that, you know, you begin as a creature born in response and there's the loving response of the parent 
that is then met by the child demanding more and the, the parent then also responding more. So there's this dialectic of responsiveness. And the responsiveness uh, is what allows you to grow uh, and, and, and grow in complexity. And, uh, and that somehow it's when you make a demand and it's met in an affirmative way, then you make more demands. And the, the, the danger of the, or, uh, the potential danger in that is you can imagine a world in which the demands are not met or the demands are met in, in, in a destructive way. And so that there's a way in which, and this is where vulnerability comes in and you want to say, okay, now I understand why the Greek poets are so terrified, uh, that you can imagine a world that, that doesn't respond to you or responds negatively to you. And what will happen then is the autonomy you would like to have you lose control of and, and your life becomes diminished, not through any real failure of yourself, but simply because the world doesn't support it. And, and to some extent, when, when the sort of full scope of that thought comes in, you realize luck is an enormous factor in human life. Uh, and, you know, and, and it can simply go away. Uh, and I, maybe a good way of thinking about this is what just happened with COVID. Uh, you know, in, in COVID, the world became a far less affirming place. And what happened is, I, I'm beginning to think, is a fair number of people became depressed simply because when they encountered the world, the world would not give them back something that affirmed them. And, and then this can happen. And you can also begin to see, here's the political context. If, if you're in a political situation, this is, I think, the value for democracy. If you're in an authoritarian political situation, you are not affirmed. Uh, uh, you know, what is affirmed is the person who's in charge. Uh, and as a result of that, you might want to say, your possibility, your subjectivity is diminished, not through any fault of your own, but simply by the misfortune of being in that political circumstance. And uh, one would like to feel one had more control over one's life, but I don't think you do. Uh, I, I just think there's this element of luck so that if, you, if, if you're fortunate enough to be in a democracy, you should value it enormously uh, because a lot of people are not. Uh, I was just going to ask um, uh, a few minutes ago, and I understand that you're using it differently, but when you talk about erotic attachment, do you mind just uh, for our audience uh, distinguishing that from the more commonplace use of, of erotic, just to give a, a yeah. fuller and clearer it, picture of what, what you're talking about with that creation yeah, subjective. It, it doesn't mean erotic attachment doesn't mean uh, sort of, we might say sort of more balder notion of sexual attachment. Uh, it, 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 it means the sort of thrust for connection with something which is loving. Uh, and so that, that, that Eros as a force, uh, it, it, at, a time, at a time can take, in fact, sexual activity. Uh, but as a force, it's, 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 it's inevitably compelling you outside, or better what, as a force, it's inevitably invading you. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's making demands on you, and you're making demands on it. And so, so there's a way in which you want to say, and this that we are somehow the medium through which this this force operates and 
what it does is it's inevitably compelling us to find objects and the objects are not quite what we want. Uh, and, uh, but they then come back and affirm us, make a demand on us. And then we make a demand on them. And in this dialectic back and forth, you might say an affective bond, uh, may, might be the better term of putting it. An affective bond is formed and that bond just keeps expand, potentially expands. And, um, Maybe a good way to think about it is, if we go back to the Phaedrus, the, the sort of paradigmatic erotic uh, instance is conversation. And uh, it's conversation ultimately between a lover and a beloved. And in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a good erotic conversation, what you realize is the ideas and the thoughts don't belong to the participants as individuals, but belong to the participants to the extent that they are in this shared relationship, to the extent that they are somehow participating in um, being erotically engaged with each other. And, and so that's the way I would tend to think about it. I want to make sure I'm, I'm tracking with you, and I think I, think I am. Would an example, would an example, good example be, uh, so I have uh, we talked about this at the beginning. I have five kids here at the house. Um, and there are certain days where all I want to do is just go in a room by myself <laughs> and not be interrupted, right? Um, right? Even if they don't say anything, you know, and even like uh, my wife works from home, I work from home. So like my wife is around and uh, it's a multi-generational house. So my parents are around. And just even if they're not asking anything of me, just by their very presence, there are demands on me, yes. right? In a way that if I was just in this house by myself, I, I would not be challenged, right? Like the fact that there is um, this desire for the other and this even um, the kind of the, the knowledge that they are there and that they are watching me, that they are interacting with me, that the future holds like, oh man, if I make dinner, I have to make it with them in mind, right? It's not just, what do I want, right? Is that kind of, is that a good illustration of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think it's actually an excellent illustration. And, and kids are really helpful that way because you keep on saying, well, why don't they do exactly what I want them to do? You know, uh, why do they have this kind of, <laughs> you know, why do they have this independence? And you realize to the extent that they have good independence, it forces you as a parent and an adult to grow. And that you want to say the worst thing in the world would be have a fully mm. obedient child. Uh, and that um, that would simply give you back an image of yourself that, that didn't allow you to grow. Inevitably, the challenge is, is I need to become a better parent. I need to become a more interesting parent. Or I, I realized I was tired this time, so I didn't attend the way I should have. And, and you keep saying, well, what happens from, from all of that is I have a richer life. And you can also see that at 10 o'clock at night, you can say, screw the richer life. Uh, all I want to do is just be left alone <laughs> and be quiet. And, and that's an understandable aspect yeah, of life. Yeah. You know, uh, one, one can't be erotically engaged. A little too life. rich. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, <laughs> And the thing is that this makes kids even more fun this way is you can't predict when the challenges are going to come and be meaningful. 
but you have to be open to them. And, mm. and that's a hard thing to do. It's especially hard thing to do because kids grow. And so often what you're trying to do is respond to a four-year-old as if they were a three-year-old. And the four-year-old is letting you know that that's no longer working. And so you say, oh, yeah, now I have to somehow retool myself. And, um, but you can begin to see if you can do that, then you have a really rich life. Um, and if you can't do that, you're going to be incredibly frustrated because it feels like the world is just frustrating your will. And it's not doing what you want it to do. The world is not behaving. Um, and what you want to say is, uh, right? Uh, and what you want to say is, I want a world that misbehaves the right amount. Uh, you know, if it misbehaves all the time, that's not going to work either. Uh, and but you say, well, what's the right amount? And the answer is, you can't know that in advance. Um, and so that, uh, if you're going to be persuaded to grow as a parent, it requires a kind of openness where your openness is something you take responsibility for, uh, which also reveals something about you. You know, am I, am I too permissive? Am I, I too much of a disciplinarian? Uh, well, how do I know that? Well, how does the world respond to you? Well, is there a parent book? Is there a new version of Dr. Spock that would give me knowledge so that I would be able to function this way. And you'll say, oh, wait, there's no knowledge. Uh, all I can do is try to be open and continually reconstitute myself so that I develop a richer sense of what being a parent is. And I can't know that prior to the, ex being a, the experience of being a parent. And, and you would, you know, it would be nice in life if you could read a book. That says, here are the rules, uh, but you can't. Uh, and so, uh, but you can read books that all of a sudden say, you know, wait a minute, uh, you, you haven't thought through this thing carefully enough. Or uh, there are parts of yourself that you recognize as um, having too easily moved to a position. And so um, what I began to realize, and this takes us all back to, to the title of the book, is that what persuasion is really about is it, it's, I call it an action and event. Uh, it's this action event in which subjectivity, who we are, gets continually transformed and, and we grow. And the reason that it's, it's an action and event, it's this peculiar thing where persuasion requires you to do something. You, you can't be passively persuaded. On the other hand, there's a way in which you feel compelled to do it. So it's one of these odd things where freedom and necessity seem to be joined. And, um, and, and, and because they're joined, um, you keep getting more insight to, to who you are and to taking responsibility for the values that structure your life. I mean, which is, if you think about it, one of the tasks of an adult is, you enter adulthood with a certain set of values that you've kind of taken over. Uh, but if you're really lucky as an adult, you, you're able to, to, to I, question might sound like too aggressive a term, but at least be open to a re-examination or a deepening of the values that structure you. And in part because you're trying to figure out who you are. Uh, 
and, and what what are the potential values and um and my sense is you only do that if you take pleasure in this there has to be again an erotic effect effective component for a lot of people that's not a pleasurable activity um you know a lot of people just say shut up uh you know things are okay i'm, I'm gonna get dinner tonight and uh <laughs> you know and that's it uh and and at that point you appear yeah. to be a nuisance and i wanted to uh, ask you uh, i think this is a good time to transition to uh, a really interesting thing you mentioned in the preface that there are two main challenges to this idea of persuasion mm-hmm. and one is coercion yeah right which of course is like okay you're talking about how great it is that we change but what happens when we have freedom and necessity come together and uh i'm i'm being persuaded of something wrongly mm-hmm. and then also uh how does persuasion uh, figure in, and obviously, I mean, you've been kind of answering this all along, but I, I'd love to hear more about the post-structural movement of figuration uh, into language, so, of the figures becoming what language is all about. But first, please talk to us about uh, coercion. How do we, what is the ethical stance that's necessary with that? Um, okay, this this it's a really good question because the opposition to persuasion, the opposition to persuasion inevitably assumed that persuasion was a kind of soft power. And so they, they saw it as something being done to you for the benefit of the person who's persuading you. And so coercion and, and manipulation are both ways, you might want to say, to, to give you something, in the case of manipulation, that looks like a free choice, but it's really not. In, in coercion, it, it's to simply force something on you. So in both cases, what you have are aggressive acts of language. They're, they're abusive language. And what, what they're attempting to do <clears throat> is, by and large, shape the audience to the uh, desired identity that the persuader wants. And so when people reject persuasion, they reject it because they, they, are, they are inevitably, they find themselves questioning the motives of the person who's doing the persuasion. Everybody's been had. And so as a result of that, one of the things that we tend to do is to say, you know, it's like buying a used car. Uh, you know, when everybody's saying, well, I'm doing this for your benefit, or this is a great benefit, and, and you're already saying, no, uh, I know what your language is, but uh, what, what's really going on here is you're trying to manipulate me, uh, or you're trying to make a coercive effort. So what I want to say is that philosophically, those are not particularly difficult things. Don't do them. Uh, uh, from the- <laughs> From the point of view, it's true, right? Uh, uh, right, right. Uh, but from the point, if you flip over persuasion, from my, uh, look at it from the point of view of the uh, person that, that's undergoing the act of persuasion, what you realize at that point is it, it's ethically imperative that you resist. Uh, that becomes your point. Uh, and so I, I think that what you argue is, yes, it's simply wrong to to create, to manipulate or to coerce or to indoctrinate people. And so there's ethical obligations not to do that. But if you're on the receiving end, you also, you also have a set of ethical obligations. And, you know, um, one of the things that you have is the ethical obligation to critically examine and to resist uh, things which are supposedly being forced upon you. And, um, that that's so that it, you know you, you can see coercion as as creating ethical demands in both areas and um, 
and in a sense, I want to say the ethical demands for the person being coerced are, are, are actually harder than the ones for the person doing coercion. Um, and you want to say, what is the ethics of that? So that becomes kind of an interesting question from that point of view. What, uh, what would you call that capacity? Because for me, it, it almost seems like you could call that capacity discernment. That yeah. uh, the, the uh, kind of classically what, what that's called when someone is, um, when you're d- rightly uh, breaking apart a message in order to discern like, okay, is this what I need to receive or is this something I should resist? Right, and, and you can begin to see that, that as, as, as you take a notion like discernment, it becomes not simply an intellectual virtue, but it becomes an ethical virtue. Uh, that, that you have an obligation yes. as a listener to uh, be both open and critical simultaneously to the language that's coming towards you. Uh, and again, that also means examining how you're hearing things, uh, not only what's being said, but how you're hearing it. And so you begin to realize these are incredibly complex acts, and, and you, you, you don't have fixed standards to work from. Uh, uh, and, and that's why you want to say the, it has to be an ongoing process than simply a one-act thing. So yeah, I would think discernment is, is a good term for one of the ethical virtues that somebody, if, if we're thinking about what persuasion from the point of view of the person undergoing persuasion uh, needs, they need discernment. And so that's how I would go on that way. Um, in, in, in terms of sort of the, the post-structural era, uh, where when rhetoric got rediscovered in the 20th century, uh, what happened is, you know, figure was taken over from being something that an individual rhetor did to simply being a defining feature of language. And uh, in a way, that's, that's a wonderful advancement. What normally happens when that occurs is persuasion drops out of the equation. Uh, it's, it's just as if language is the system that's continually modifying itself as it goes on. And so human agency uh, is simply left to the side. And what I, I think you can do is you can say what the post-structural world showed us is that acts of persuasion or potential persuasion and acts of uh, rhetoric are just omnipresent for any language creature. Uh, and that one of the things that, as someone who participates in language then needs, is you need to figure out how you stand ethically and politically to this this ongoing sort of figurative operation, which is not necessarily controlled by any individual in a deliberative and purposive way, but is simply the environment to which we're born. Uh, and that's how I think you begin to sort of benefit from the post-structural point of view. Would you say that the figures of language, um, and, and le- maybe even language itself, is the field where this intersubjective uh, where intersubjective persuasion happens. Is that a one, another way of thinking about it? Yeah, our, our, and, and, and the way I put it is this, the, this language is, is not simply, uh, I want to say, a symbolic set of interactions, but it's also affective. Uh, that there is, there, is, there is an affective or an erotic component to language that is sometimes not fully caught in this whole notion of it simply being the figurative aspect that defines how language is taught. You want to say, the other thing about language, however figurative is, it, it, it impacts you emotionally. It impacts you effectively. Uh, 
it, 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 it becomes one of the places that we engage erotically with each other, you know? Um, and this, this takes us back to conversation. Um, you, you might want to say, and, 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 and this is why I think the platonic understanding of conversation is really helpful. In, in a genuine conversation between a lover and a beloved, uh, the conversation is the thing that continues. The, the participants, in a sense, are somehow incidental and historical. Uh, that there is this, this erotically evolving understanding in language and figure uh, that you hope to participate in. And the way you get into it is you literally fall in love. Uh, and the interesting thing about the, the way you fall in love platonically is initially the beloved is, is not in love. The lover is taken over through some sort of perception. It's the lover who um, sees something, sees the divinity in, in the beloved. And then what the lover does is talk. Uh, and it's only in this conversation that the beloved begins to participate in, in this sort of erotic exchange. And so uh, what you, you want to say, here's the terrifying thing that Plato uncovered that he didn't really develop, which means you have to have the good fortune of somebody falling in love with you. Uh, are you falling in love with somebody else? And, uh, and you know, uh, and that's a tricky thing. Um, I teach Jane Austen's Persuasion as a philosophical text uh, that also involves this problem. And one of the things that's interesting in, in Persuasion, as I try to explain to my students, it's a novel that has to delay a conversation for 220 pages. Uh, as soon as the conversation happens, the novel's over. Uh, so, uh, you know, we we'll say, what happens, what delays the conversation? And part of it's misunderstandings. Part of it is the right person not being available. What you find in the, in the novel is, if you have the bad fortune to marry, marry a trivial person, uh, you can't have conversations that allow you to grow, that your life becomes trivial. So you realize a lot's at stake in this thing. And, and you know, uh, I keep telling my students, well, what if the person you're supposed to love didn't take this class? What if they took the class next door? Then you'd spend your entire life not having the conversation you should have. Uh, that should terrify you. Uh, <laughs> now, the nice thing is there should be more than one person you can fall in love with. But, uh, but it does mean that you are dependent upon that relationship being maintained in a vital way. And again, that's hard to do. I mean, that takes energy. I mean, that's where the erotic impulse becomes incredibly important. Uh, you know, I mean, we've all been things where conversation has just become sort of rote and one feels it. And... Um, and I, I, interestingly, I know this as a teacher. When my class fails, it's because it lacks erotic charge, that the material I'm presenting doesn't, I, I'm, I, I lack the passion and engagement that I should have. So it's almost as if the content is identical. And what distinguishes the content and what, what brings it to life for the students is the erotic involvement of the instructor, which should hopefully produce erotic responses from the students. And that's where, where, where education really becomes a viable thing, 
because it's not information anymore. It's, it's the transformation of a subjectivity. And uh, so this is what you're continually trying to sort of say. Um, this is the component of language that sometimes the post-structuralists don't really get. And I wanted to go back to something you said earlier. I think I understand what you're saying. Um, when you say we, we can't do this according to fixed standards, Am I right in assuming the reason that we can't have fixed standards, you know, and some that's post-structuralism, I understand that, but is because the the very thing we're having, many times those standards are what we're having conversations about, right? And so you cannot be persuaded about something that's already fixed. So you, so, and so you cannot change if your standards are set 100%, like, well, like you mentioned earlier, frozen or set in stone. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, is is that you, you hold them provisionally, which okay. doesn't mean that they're just arbitrary or they can be cast aside, but they're not fixed. And and once they become yeah. fixed in an interesting way, I want to say logically, you're no longer available for persuasion. Uh, whatever occurs, it's not persuasion. Right. And and uh, this also takes us back to your, your concerns with coercion and manipulation. There are a whole series of things that people might on the outside look like they're persuasion, but you want to say, it's fundamentally a different act. It, it may be pretending to be persuasion, uh, but the kind of, I want to say, developing subjectivity, which is at the heart of what persuasion is trying to, to um, support and develop, doesn't occur. And, and so this is why it becomes, I, I think, a rich concept to rethink what we're doing. Is, and, 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 you know, there's, there's a... One of the things I like out of Jonathan Lear that you know, I sort of spent some time with, he said, individuals do not occur naturally in nature. Uh, uh, the individual is an achievement. Uh, you know, that biologically you're there, but you don't become an individual uh, until certain kinds of things happen. I realized, actually, what, that, what he's really saying is, we are individuals because we persuade ourselves that we are individuals. And so that at, at, at the core of your identity is an act of persuasion. Uh, I have persuaded myself I am who I am. Uh, and that's a kind of an interesting thing to think about. And, um, and that that activity is ongoing. You know, uh, and the only danger is to think I, I finally know who I am. And as soon as I think I know who I am, I am no longer available for persuasion. Um, I can be confirmed or I can be irritated, but I can't be persuaded. And, uh, and, and as I tell my students, you know, it's a lot easier to be available for persuasion when you're 25 than when you're 70. Uh, and that uh, you, you tend to think, okay, I, I, I kind of know who I am. And you will say at that point, you stop growing. And I realized that the people I began to really value of my senior colleagues were the people who were in their 70s and 80s who were still figuring things out anew. And um, they weren't repeating themselves. And, um, uh, and that creates a, a more interesting and complex life. And, and the reward is an interesting and complex life. I mean, that's kind of, you know, it's this, it's it's, it's to steal from Alistair McIntyre, it's an internal good. Uh, it, it can only be appreciated by people who are inside the practice. And from the outside, it seems really stupid. Uh, if you only value external goods, it's far better just chase money. 
Uh, and, and you say, yeah, money is a good, uh, but it's, it's, you can only get the goods of persuasion by participating in the practice of persuasion. They're, they're internal to it. And, um, or another way to put it, you can't persuade someone to be available for persuasion who doesn't want to be available for persuasion. Persuasion is at that point hits the limit. Um, if, if you don't understand that's an internal good, um, and so, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, Dr. Caselli, one, let me say thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Uh, absolutely fascinating. For our audience, if you could leave them with one takeaway from this talk today, I, I, there's a lot, right? But if you could leave, uh, leave them with one takeaway, what would it be? I, I think what it would be is to to value responsiveness, to value the capacity to see the world and, and the people in it and, and the products that we've made as erotic objects. And that, that when you engage with them, what's possible is the development of, of I want to say, a richer appreciation of what it means to be alive in this world. And that... Um, there are a lot of things you don't have control over, but one of the things is if you can maintain that kind of openness, a certain kind of agency is available to you that's incredibly valuable. And um, it's, uh, it's really a function of just simply saying, really following Socrates to say, you know, I really don't know who I am. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't know anything about myself, but... Uh, there's, right, there's right. things to learn that I am a mystery. Uh, and that's a good thing. You know, mysteries are good things. That's why it's to some extent, and you can see how a mystery novel works. Uh, you're always trying to read to get to the end of the book. <laughs> but when you get to the end of the book, you're always kind of sad uh, that it's over. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, the, the, the value. If it's a good of, one, yeah. Yeah. The value of a good mystery is that, that you want to say there's an energy and a vitality in the experience that's just pleasurable in and of itself. And, um, and ideally, you would like life to be that kind of a mystery. And, uh, and I guess if I had to leave anybody with anything, that's kind of what I would say is, you know, savor the mystery of yourself. And, uh, and you know, and um, uh, that's a good way to be. Savor the mystery of yourself. What a great summary for uh, just a, an incredible conversation. Uh, thank you, Dr. Costelli. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you. I, I, I've enjoyed it enormously too. So thank you very much. 